0: The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, um, we come to your word again this morning as a uh, people who uh, are so uh, distracted by our own activities, our own agendas, our own life, we get very self-focused. And uh, so Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us a heart for you and a heart for others, and that you would show our place in your mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I had mentioned this morning, we're looking at Acts 13, and it's the start of the Modern or it's the start of the mission movement of the early church, the organized mission movement, which they're sending out missionaries to carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I really want to address the question of, why would we partake in this ministry? Why would we be passionate about foreign missions? But before I do that, I want to ask the question: Why would we not be passionate about it? And I think there are a lot of reasons why we may not be passionate about foreign missions. Uh, one reason is because it is countercultural. People will say, why are you imposing your gods on peoples in other lands? They're happy with their own gods. They're happy with their own religions. Just let them be. People in foreign lands are probably saying, we don't need your missionaries. We don't need people to come here. We are perfectly happy with the way life is. And so in some ways, missions is countercultural. But there's also resistance to missions even within the church. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not so subtle. William Carey, uh, who was born in the 1700s, a time when the church uh, was really not participating in foreign missions, uh, began to get a heart to share the gospel with the unreached people groups of the world, especially those in India. And as he came before the council of ministers in his country, he came and shared his passion about missions and about reaching those with the good news of Christ, hoping for their encouragement and for their support. But instead, he was reprimanded. One of the ministers saying to him, sit down, young man, you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. And so even in the church, sometimes, use our own theology to remove the passion for foreign missions. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it is more obvious, like here. Knowing that I was preaching on this message today, I actually emailed many of the foreign missionaries that Jacob's well supports, and I asked them simply the question, what is the most difficult uh, part of being a foreign missionary? Some of them are probably um, answers you would expect, some of them not as much. Uh, One of them said that what is so difficult for them is the loss of family, the loss of friends, the loss of relationships, the loss of memories for their kids with their grandparents, not being able to go to weddings or birthday parties or funerals. Another said that always being on the outside as an immigrant is the hardest part. That when they're overseas, no matter how much they're trying to study the culture and be a part of the culture and love the culture, they always feel like an outsider. And then when they come back to America, they feel like an outsider because the last time they lived here was 2010. And so they really only know 2010 Americans. So they say they always feel like an outsider. Another one said that the hardest part of being a foreign missionary is simply the fact that there are so many difficulties that are constantly weighing them down, the challenge of language and culture and relationships and teammates and expectations of supporters. I sent a similar email out to parents of foreign missionaries because it too is a great suffering for them, asking them what the hardest part was for them of having a child who was a foreign missionary. And they said the loss of family members as a ever presence in their life. One parent even put it this way, saying the potential of us being strangers to our own grandchildren. And so my question for you today is, with all of the suffering, with all of the barriers to doing foreign missions, why would it be something that we would be passionate to be a part of? If you would please open up to Acts chapter 13 if you have not yet already. It's page 921 in the Red Bible, page 1197 in the Children's Bible. Uh, If William Carey is known as the father of modern missions, today we read about someone we might call the father of ancient missions, the Apostle Paul. And we are going to read about his first of four missionary journeys. And my hope is as we journey with Paul, that God will break down our barriers to foreign missions. Break down uh, our barriers to being passionate about foreign missions. So that we might see that it is worthy of our prayer and of our support. My hope is that even some of you here today, that through God's word, He would send you on a trajectory to go to unreached peoples of the world and share the good news of Christ. And even for others as parents, that you could somehow joyfully through tears encourage your own kids to go away to a faraway land where you'll only see them a couple times a year to tell others about Jesus Christ. And so despite all of the barriers, despite all of the pain and the cost and the suffering and the convenience, why should we be passionate about foreign missions? And the first thing we'll see today is because missions promotes God's plan. If you remember in Acts chapter 1... Jesus has raised from the dead. It's before his ascension into heaven, and he gives uh, that he he speaks to the disciples, and he gives kind of the outline of the book of Acts, but also his great commission. And he says, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you," which happens in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. And he says, "And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem," which is Acts chapter two. uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter. Uh, 2 through 5, and then in Judea and Samaria, which is Acts chapters 6 through 12, and then he says, and to the ends of the earth, which starts in Acts chapter 13, which is where we are today. And so this is a pivotal turning point in the life of the church in which they're facing outward and going outward with the good news of the gospel. And then as we approach Acts chapter 13, if you can put the map up, I don't have my laser pointer. I don't know what I'm going to do today, but um, anyway, quick, anyone got a laser pointer? No? All right. Dang. Thank you. <laughs> this was actually part of his job description. Was Yeah. So thank you, Chad. Um, but in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter goes to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, which is down there at the bottom. And then in Acts chapter 11, there's a revival up in Antioch, which you can see is up in the northern part. Very good. Who has that? Way to go, Chad. Thank you, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. How do I work the laser pointer? <laughs> what button do I hit? Oh, there we go. All right. Yay. All right. So there's there's a there's a revival up here in Antioch. Many come to faith in Christ, and so uh, so Barnabas is sent. Uh, From Jerusalem up to Antioch, where he ministers for a year, and then Saul is brought over from Tarsus, where they minister for a year. There is a great famine in the land, and so the Christians up in Antioch uh, gather some relief to send down to Jerusalem. While they're down in Jerusalem, uh, we read about this in Acts chapter 12, but there's a great persecution in the church. One of the Herods uh, actually kills, I believe it's James. Is that correct, Chad? Is it James? Uh, is killed. And then Peter is thrown in jail. Um, and then miraculously, through prayer and the power of God, Peter is released. And Herod goes over somewhere, I think Tyre Sidon. And then he uh, actually uh, kind of, what, where is it? Caesarea. Caesarea. He goes to Caesarea. Okay. And then he kind of um, just combusts and he dies, right? And it's a miracle of God. And so there the church is free again of oppression. And so Peter and, uh, Peter and I'm sorry, Saul and Barnabas now They travel from Jerusalem back up to Antioch, and that's where we pick up today's story. And so let's actually start in verse 25 of chapter 12, the last verse, and we'll continue through chapter 13. As you can see, there's a lot of scripture to cover today, and so um, may God's grace be upon us. (laughs) All right, Acts uh, chapter 12, verse 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to Antioch when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now let's just break that apart a little bit. I think it's very interesting that we are listed out who is present in the church in Antioch there in verse 1. And what we see as we walk through this list, it's actually a pretty motley crew. First off, there is Barnabas. Barnabas is a Jew from Jerusalem. And then there is Simon, who was called Niger, and he was a black man. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene, who was from a Roman capital on the northern coast of Africa. And then there is this guy named Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The reason why I mention that is because the Herods, there were many Herods, all part of the family, and they systematically would persecute and kill Christians. But somehow God had rescued this man out of that and brought him to faith in Jesus Christ. And then there is, of course, Saul. And who was Saul? Saul was a Jew of all Jews. He was commissioned to go and to persecute the church, to throw them into jail. He was applauding and approving of Christians being killed. And now here are all of these men together in the early church, from all of the different places and all of these different backgrounds who have come together to worship Christ. And what we see here is diversity starting to form in the church. And this is a foretaste of what is about to happen in Acts chapter 13 and throughout the rest of the book of Acts and really throughout the rest of the course of human. In history as God continues to extend his gospel through every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so God is giving us a foretaste of what is to come. And so when we ask the question, why should we be passionate about foreign missions? I think one of the reasons to be passionate about it is because God is opening up his kingdom. He is diversifying his kingdom. It is not just for the Jews. It is not just for the Americans. It is for every nation. Now, as we read on, we see an even bigger reason why we should be passionate about foreign missions. If you notice in this passage, um, this idea of foreign missions was not the church's idea. Uh, it wasn't Paul's idea. It wasn't Barnabas's idea. It, it wasn't even the saints in Antioch. It wasn't their idea. Look at verse 2. The Holy Spirit, who God, said to the church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then verse 4 says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so while the church lays hands on these men and sends them out and commissions them, The primary sender of foreign missionaries is God. See, missions is not primarily our idea. It is God's idea. And so the reason we should be passionate about foreign missions is because God is passionate about foreign missions. Now, why is God so passionate about foreign missions? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 6 says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Okay, let's pause again and look at another map since I got my laser pointer. So here they were up in Antioch. This Antioch is actually one of 16 Antiochs. They'll end up here later. Uh, Someone named it after their father and just Named 16 of them, um, not really creative, but that's what they did. And so they came down to Seleucia, they set sail for Cyprus. They landed in Salamis and they started to preach uh, in the synagogues to Jews. That was their tradition to first go to the synagogues to proclaim to those who are waiting for the Savior and the Messiah to come, to go and say, listen, he has come, he has come, he has come. And so they preach there in the synagogues and then they travel all the way to Paphos and along the way, most likely are preaching the gospel the entire way. And then they come to Paphos. And when they come to Paphos, they encounter a magician named Bar-Jesus. Now, this magician is not the type of magician that we think of. You know, a magician we think of is someone who pulls a bunny out of a hat or says, guess which card, you know, things like that. And they guess your card, stuff like that. This was a, a, a wicked magician. This was a magician of black magic, a magician of the occult, a magician that opposed God. And so this is where they're at in that city. And they go and they go to preach about Jesus. And they are going to be opposed by this false prophet. Verse 7 says, When he, talking about Bar-Jesus, was with the pro-council, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn pro-council away from the faith. The pro would be the highest ranking official of a Roman province. And so he may be the most powerful man on the island of Cyprus. And for some unexplainable reason, this man asked Saul and Barnabas, come and teach them what they're teaching everybody else. Now, the reason why this is so amazing is because Christianity was not that popular at this time. Christianity was this little sect, little religion that was starting to grow over in Jerusalem and Judea and up to Antioch, but really had not infiltrated Cyprus. It was relatively unknown, and yet this man calls him, the most powerful man on the island, to come and share about what the Believe. And here, Bar Jesus, who is in service of the proconsul, uh, a man who makes his, his living by, by doing things for the proconsul, understands that Saul and Barnabas oppose a threat to his livelihood. Uh, oppose a threat to his power, to his fame, and oppose a threat to the evil forces that he serves. And so he is opposing not only the gospel, but he's opposing God's missionaries, a common theme that we see throughout the book of Acts and really the rest of human history. And so verse 9 continues it says, But Saul who was also called Paul. There's the name switch. If you hear me confusing the name, that's right. Why? Saul became Paul. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Gentile Roman name. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at Bar-Jesus, and said, you son of the devil, your enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making the straight path of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is Bar-Jesus actually means son of Jesus. Now, he was not son of Jesus of Nazareth, certainly. Jesus would have been a popular name. Uh, it's, it's the same name as Joshua. And so there are many of Jesus's around, and he was a son of Jesus. But now, Saul is clarifying and saying, you are not a son of Jesus. You are actually a son of the devil. Verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I am staggered at how similar this is to Paul's conversion on the Damascus road. We don't hear what happens to Bar-Jesus, but maybe he comes to faith in Christ later too. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This word astonished simply means amazement. Imagine if you were there. Imagine if you were a fly on the wall or if you were in the court and you saw this whole thing unfolding in which. Paul and Barnabas come in and they start talking about Jesus. And Bar-Jesus, this guy who, who hates Christians, starts opposing them. And, and Paul says, you are a son of the devil. You are going to be blind. And then you see this man, this probably the most powerful man on the whole island, fall down and he's blind and he's groping around looking for someone to lead him. If you were there, if you were flying wall, if you saw this, what would you be amazed by? You'd be amazed that this guy was struck blind, Right? He had so much power, so much influence, and yet now he is brought down to a rubble that is needy. But if you read closely, that's not what the proconsul was amazed by. If you read closely there in verse 12, what astonished the proconsul was the teaching of the Lord. You see, the miracle confirmed the teaching. But that's not what he was amazed by. He was astonished by the teaching of the Lord, and he believed. You know, we talked about this a few months ago, but I think we are so easily fascinated by lesser miracles, right? We want to see blind men see. We want to see lame men walk. We want to see mountains thrown into the ocean. And all of those are wonderful miracles, but none of them are as astonishing as the Word of God as the teaching of the Lord, as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Charles Wesley was a minister many centuries ago in the 1700s, and he was actually ordained, and he was a missionary to the Americas. He went back to his homeland, and um, after coming back, he realized that he wasn't a Christian. And so he started to hear the gospel, and the gospel started to change him. And on May 21st, 1738, he was a born again Christian. And he journaled saying, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. Two days later, he started his first of over 5,000 hymns. And in that first hymn, you can see how astonished he was when he fully understood the gospel. He says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me, he for me, who caused his pain. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite, his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. No condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. And then you probably know the chorus. Amazing love. Astonishing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Does this astonish you? Does this amaze you? Do you ponder this and think, what in the world? How could this be that the God who had created all things has come to die for me? This is not just good news. This is astonishing news. And why would we engage in foreign missions? It's because it promotes God's plan of astonishing the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that the nations might believe. So that's one reason we should be passionate about foreign missions. The second is because missions proclaims God's story. What is so astonishing about the good news of the gospel, what well, Paul lists that out for us here in these passages. We get a closer look. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, Now Paul and his companions sailed from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseidon. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so if we look back at the map, I'm a visual person. They were in Paphos. They sailed up to Perga and then they went, And then uh, John went came down here back to Jerusalem, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But then Paul and Barnabas went from Perga all the way up to Antioch, and they sit in the synagogue, as we said is customary, and they welcome them to give feedback on uh, the reading of God's Word, which would be interesting if we did that here. But anyways, another time. So so here is Paul and Barnabas, and they're welcome to, to 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 share what God has been teaching them, to share um, what they know of God's Word. And so they launch in, or Paul launches into, the story of the gospel. And as I read it, I can't go into a lot of the parts. There's a lot there. We have a lot to cover today. But I want you to see if you can notice any repetition uh, in what we're about to read. And and Paul's telling of the story of God's redemption. And I'll try to use my, my uh, secret voice inflectuation to, uh, to make you notice it, but see if you can figure it out. So verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arms, he, God, led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he, God, put up with them or carried them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he, God, gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he, God, gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he, God, testified and said, I, God, have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Did you notice any repetition in Paul's telling of the story of redemption? Who chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God did. Who multiplied Israel and Egypt into a great people? God did. Who broke their chains and led them out of slavery into freedom? God did. Who carried the people of God through the wilderness? God did. Who defeated Israel's enemies and gave him the promised land of Canaan? God did. Who removed corrupt leaders and gave them good ones? God did. Who has brought about the seed of David, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ? God did. Who is the primary character in the history, and the plan, and the story of redemption? God is. When I was graduating seminary, I was applying for a job over at New Hope Church on the other side of town. Great church, and. Um, I was applying for that position and I was in the midst of finals. And so I was busy and they had this job application that I had to fill out. And so I'm kind of speeding through it, filling out whatever I can. And one of the questions on there is, what is Reformed Theology? And I thought, boy, I could write a book on this, but I really don't have the time. And so I gave the answer, which I was convinced of in seminary. And that is Reformed Theology is simply the fact that God is always the hero. God is always the hero is always the hero throughout the Bible, but he's also always the hero of our life. Did you know that? Do you, I mean, do you believe that God is the hero of your life? If you have been born again of God, God is the hero of that. If you have had sin loosen its grip on your life, God is the hero of that. If God has used you to introduce others to him, God is the hero of that. God is the hero of our past. God is the hero of our present. And God is the hero of our future. And so to God is all the glory. God is the hero of redemption. God is the center point of the story of redemption. He is the main actor in our redemption. Now, if I could just go on a brief tangent, I'll try to make it very brief. The Apostle Paul goes and he, he goes from town to town to town sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is very interesting is he starts in a lot of different places with the story of God's redemption. Um, he actually knows his audience. He knows who he is talking to. And he doesn't beat them overhead and tell them what's wrong with everything they believe. But what he does is he starts with the good parts of what they believe. And then he leads them to the same destination. And so here he starts with, uh, he's in a synagogue with Jewish people. So he's talking about the history of Israel. He's talking about their family line, their family history. But when then he goes on to Athens later, his audience is philosophers. And so he starts by saying to the men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is a compliment. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar within Scripture to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then Paul goes on to quote some of their poets. And then he tells them the good news of the gospel. You see, when Paul shares the good news of the gospel, he starts in a lot of different places, depending on where people are. But he always ends at the same place. He always ends at the same destination. You see, all of you here came from different houses, um, unless you're family, right? But all of you came from different houses, and all of you got here in different ways. Some of you took highway. Some of you were able able to just take local roads. For some of you, it was a long, uh, uh, wavy route. For some of you, it was a straight, short route. But all of you arrived at the same destination. All of you arrived here, and all of us arrived at the foot of the cross. And so as Paul goes and he shares the good news of the gospel. He starts in a lot of different places, but he always ends with the good news of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see happens here. Verse 24. Paul continues his speech. He says, Before his coming, Jesus' coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, became, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written on him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You know, we have already read about how God is the hero of our redemption. But I want you to notice what men do in this story. What they do is they take Jesus, who is completely innocent— and they condemn him to death. But the good news is even in our rebellion, God still remains the hero of the story. And we see him step in here in verse 30. It says, But God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, also translate gospel news, That what God promised to the fathers, this he, God, has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Then as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore he, God, says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Do you see where Paul ends up? It's where Paul always ends up. Paul ends up with Jesus, with the cross, with the resurrection. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people to save his people. Now, he does not end there because we know that such a message demands a response. And he continues to call for that. But what we see here is that we are called to be passionate about God's mission to the world because it is God's mission to the world. And because God has a desire to share the astonishing story of the gospel to those who so desperately need it. Finally, we should be passionate about missions because missions populates God's kingdom. Verse 38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And now here's where he asks the response. Verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let me pause here just for a second to say how encouraged they must be. How encouraged they must be that they have come to the synagogue, they have preached the gospel, and people say, please come back, please come back and share, okay? But let's see what happens. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy And went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. One thing that becomes very evident here and throughout the book of Acts is wherever the gospel is preached, it will be met with mixed responses always. Not only will men and women be brought into the kingdom of God, but other men and women will oppose the word of God. While many hear the gospel and respond by faith and trust in Christ and are saved, there are many who discourage the spread of Christ. And they not only reject the message, but they reject the messengers of God. 2 Corinthians 2.15 puts it this way. "says For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. You know, I think one of the chief things that Satan delights in is that when we are so afraid of rejection that we tell the gospel to no one, I think that is a happy time for Satan. Satan delights when we let the fear of rejection outweigh or overshadow the delight of those who will trust in Christ and become a part of God's kingdom. This is partly why John Mark had to go back to Jerusalem because of his fear in sharing the gospel. We'll talk more about that later. But I am so thankful that this fear did not capture Barnabas, that it did not capture Paul, that they continued to went forth to share the good news of the gospel with others that many might be saved. I'm so thankful for Chip Buck in St. Louis, Missouri, who came to Parkway West High School. And although many, many kids rejected him, continued to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people like me could become part of the people of God's, of God. Friend, we will never win others to Christ if we are not willing to be rejected for Christ. But if we let our love for others and our love for Christ and our love for God's kingdom triumph over our fear of men and their rejection, then not only will we share the gospel, but as verse 48 and 52 talks about, we will rejoice together. We will glorify God together. We will be filled together with joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the missionaries that I sent a letter to asking what's the hardest thing about being a foreign missionary. They said, living in a country where the darkness and hopeless hangs on people's lives, there is a burden of knowing that no one around knows Christ and that if I don't share Christ, no one else probably ever will. And he says, honestly, we could probably write a list of 50 things that are painful or are difficult. However, God is so good and he provides for us always. How good it is to go where he Has called us. Whatever our barriers are to missions, extending God's kingdom with God's astonishing story trumps all of those things because He is worthy to be praised. Our prayer is that His glorious kingdom would grow and that more would rejoice and enjoy Him for all eternity. Let me end with this. About two centuries ago, There was a band of brave souls who became known as one-way missionaries, and they purchased single tickets to the mission field without a return trip, knowing that they probably would not come back. And instead of suitcases, they would pack their few things in coffins. And as they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone that they loved, everything they knew, knowing that they would probably never return. And the question is, why would somebody do that? What would it it be that would motivate a person to turn away from everything they know and everything they love to pursue a people who probably does not want to receive them? Well, you remember the father of modern modern missions, William Carey. He says it like this. He says, if Christ could stop stoop so low as to visit our sinful world and be moved with compassion upon the most undeserving and guilty, the most sinful and depraved. And what better way could we demonstrate that we are partakers of his grace than by earnest endeavor to imitate his example, by laboring to promote the salvation of the most ignorant and helpless of mankind? You see, the greatest mission to, missionary to ever live was not William Carey. And it was not the Apostle Paul. The greatest missionary to ever live was Jesus Christ, who left his comfortable home of heaven to come into a world where he would be rejected, but would ultimately accomplish our salvation. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries, those one-way missionaries that packed his stuff in a coffin as he left. And he set sail from London to the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had killed all of the missionaries that came before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. He set off, he arrived, and he ended up ministering there for 35 years among the tribal members who loved him as he told them the astonishing news of the gospel. When Milne died, the tribe members buried him in the middle of the city, the middle of the village, and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. It simply said, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Let's pray. Lord, I I come confessing my own selfishness my own lack of of passion towards foreign missions. And yet, if the gospel is true, if the gospel brings light into the dark areas of the world, God, may we be people that are passionate about foreign missions because you are passionate about foreign missions. May we be people that seek to send light where there is darkness. So that although there are areas right now where there is no light, that your missionaries may go And that there may be no more darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.